Deuteronomy 10, 12 through 22. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good? To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth, and everything in it. Yet the Lord set his affection on your ancestors and loved them, and he chose you, their descendants, above all the nations as it is today. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. And you are to love those who are foreigners, for you yourselves were foreigners in Egypt. Fear the Lord your God and serve him. Hold fast to him and take your oaths in his name. He is the one you praise. He is your God who performed for you those great and awesome wonders you saw with your own eyes. Your ancestors who went down into Egypt were seventy in all, and now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars in the sky. The grass withers and the flowers fall. James 2, 1 through 13. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, Here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, You stand there, or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said you shall not commit adultery also said you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. The word of the Lord. Will you pray with me, please? Father, hearing Nathan's announcement earlier reminds me that the leadership of the Chinese government may be more astute theologians than we. 
sensing the Bible's power, they ban it. We have it and find it easy to ignore. But we don't want to ignore it this morning. We'd like it to come alive on us. We'd like to become people who aren't ruled by preferencing our own selves and reading this book in our own favor. And we know that to do that, you'll have to mercifully meddle within us. We invite you to do that. We want to know you. We want to be different than we are. We are displeased with ourselves in so many ways. Will you overcome our inconsistencies and the incompatibilities of our practice with our faith? And through it all, will you keep us clinging to that life preserver of the mercy of God in Jesus Christ, our only hope for not sinking? Come be with us now, Holy Spirit. Surprise us with nourishing things we can use on our own hearts, and for the life of the world. In Jesus' name, amen. As we continue through the book of James, this book where we're looking at a faith that lives, this book where James is writing to scattered believers throughout the nations and urging them that the deepest commitments and confidences of their hearts should be making their way into their lives and into their speech. And last week, as he was urging us not merely to let the Word of God tickle our ears, but instead to let it fuel our actions, let it motivate and move us in what we're doing. Don't just listen to the Word of God. He says, do what it says. And he reminds us of This true religion, which is holding the tongue and looking out for orphans and widows and keeping oneself from being polluted by the world. And then he continues in a kind of description of the kind of pollution that we're born into, something that he finds inconceivable, an inconceivable incompatibility Two I words, which are equally unintelligible to you, probably. But I'm thinking about Vizzini, who has a habit in many different instances in The Princess Bride when there are foreboding events, there are fears awaiting. And he reassures his comrades with this one word, inconceivable. It would be inconceivable that we should be tracked down, that that Andre the giant, or that the masked Wesley could climb those tall cliffs. But he says it so many times, and yet the thing he finds inconceivable happens that Inigo Montoya has to conclude, you keep using that word. I do not think that it means what you think that it means. Because inconceivable means the mind can't think of it. You couldn't imagine it. You couldn't anticipate it. And it keeps happening. And so Anigo thinks there's no way this could be 
the right use of the word. In a minute, I'm going to Miyagi this thing that's flying. Oh. And James is calling out something to our attention. Perhaps something that he's heard is happening. Certainly something that you could see at any point in human history. Something that's inconceivable and inconceivably incompatible with belief in Jesus Christ. And so he starts out by saying, My brothers, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, do not show favoritism. Now, stylistically, James and I are, shall we say, different. I've always been drawn to the Emily Dickinson, tell the truth, but tell it slant. James likes to be a hammer that hits the nail right on the head. He does not tell any truth slant. He tells them all very directly, very clearly, and sometimes curtly. Don't show favoritism. Doesn't qualify it. He just says, don't do that because it's inconceivably incompatible with faith in Jesus Christ. And this Lord who's going to come back. And this, this Lord who has shown himself to be no respecter of persons, who shows no partiality, who is the fulfillment of all the hopes of Israel and the very picture of God, who has always looked out for those that nobody else was bothering over, who's always been impartial, who demonstrated to Peter in his vision, and then in practice by pouring out the Holy Spirit, that he is willing to indiscriminately welcome anybody from anywhere at any time. And James is saying, if you have come into faith by believing in this Jesus who looks at every person without fail and says, you do not have what it takes, but I do. And on my cross, I will set right all things including your infractions, including your rebellions, and I will wipe them out, and not only that, will clothe you all equally with myself and call you to me. To believe in that, and then to practice any kind of favoritism, says James, is an inconceivable incompatibility that shouldn't exist. Don't Show favoritism, he says. And what is favoritism? I think we intuitively know, but he gives us an example of the sort of thing he has in mind. You could say that favoritism is a kind of discrimination where you meet up with someone who otherwise would enjoy your favor or your respect. They would have some claim to you 
And you make distinctions between this someone and that someone based on some external factor, based on purely some superficial reason, like where they're from, what their accent is, where they went to school, what color their skin is, how finely they're dressed, where they happen to work. See, when James is talking about inconceivable incompatibilities, he's, he's up to something. We are a people who are fond of using as a justification for nearly everything. Well, it's natural. There are all kinds of things that happen in the world that are natural. They just naturally occur. There are desires that we have. We should just act on them. They're natural. They just occur to us. This is what our justification for many things is. And James would say, well, you know, favoritism itself, discrimination itself, racism itself, despite the naive claims of many that racism is taught. Nobody is born racist. I would say, I don't know. Certainly parts of it are taught. But there sure have been a lot of racisms throughout the history of the world. No groups have ever esteemed each other naturally. It is natural to dislike people who aren't like you. It is natural for people to have suspicions of people who aren't like them. We have gravitational pulls, to use Tim Keller's word, to people who are a lot like us. When I was in seminary in a church planting course, I was made aware of the 80s. I had lived in the 80s also. But in the 80s in a church growth movement, there was a principle called the homogeneity unit principle. Because people are nerds. They wanted to make church planting sound sophisticated. No, but the idea is... If you want to plant a church easily, swiftly, quickly, what you want to do is you want to get the same kind of people together. If you get enough Patagonia people in a room with the same likes, who vacation in the same places, who went to the same kinds of schools, who dislike the same kinds of food, who have the same kind of snobbishness about kale then you will have a successful plant. It'll, boom, pop up like that. Because people really like being together with people like them. It reminds them of them. The hardest churches to plant are churches where there's great difference. Great differences in education. Great differences in style. We have people who like, like air conditioning and people who, you know, like us, who hate it. We hate air conditioning. That's a joke. But multicultural churches are much more difficult to plant because there's all sorts of things to negotiate. So little to be taken for granted. So many possibilities for misunderstanding. But James says we're not going for what's natural here. Believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ have been invaded with the life of heaven and suddenly are beyond what is natural. 
They're suddenly able to be concerned not just with their own natural predilections and their own natural proclivities. They're able to be concerned beyond the gravitational pull of their own hearts. Jesus puts it in a very similar way. He says, look, so here's what's natural. Love your neighbor. Love your mama. Love your grandma. Love your cousin Ricky. Hate your enemy. Duh. And then he says, if you only invite people to parties, they'll invite you back. How are you any different than anybody else? Don't pagans do that? And if you only love your family and not people outside your family, you only greet those who will greet you, how are you any different than Don Corleone? Even the mafia likes each other. They kill everybody else. But they, they look out for their own family. family. Sorry, I won't do that again. Pretty good Marlon Brando, I think. (laughs) But Jesus says, if you're someone who's been engrafted into the life of God, what's going to start happening is that the family resemblance will start showing through. And your father is merciful to the ungrateful and to the wicked. Your father is indiscriminately kind and generous to people who will never even thank him. He'll never even notice him, who in fact might actually take the gift of life that he's put in their lungs and use it to decry him and defame him and debunk him and to snarkily rail against him, and yet he lets them live. Jesus is saying, we, we don't, as God's people, do what's just natural, Our hearts get opened up to all kinds of people. And James gives a specific example of this kind of favoritism that he forbids because it's incompatible with being connected to the life of God that drives us to a kind of love that's much broader than what's natural. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes. Just imagine me. And then a poor man in shabby clothes, a filthy person from the street walks in. If you show special attention to the man wearing the sharp duds and are neglectful of the other dude, then haven't you become discriminating Judges with evil thoughts? James thinks way more is going on than you and I might. If the rich man walks in and you say, Ho ho! Well, here, here's a seat of honor for you. And you and you fuss and move quickly to make sure that they are esteemed. He's not opposed to esteem. He's opposed to special attention to the one based on the obvious fact that they have some influence, they have some resources, they have some something that everybody values. But this poor man, this shabbily clad man, he's not shabby chic, 
It's just shabby. And you say to him, hey, yeah, just, you can sit on the floor at my feet. Oh, there's, there's room for you to stand in the back. I'm not going to ask anybody to move. He says, you've become discriminating judges with evil thoughts. Evil thoughts. But they're unwittingly evil in most cases. But what you've done is you've suddenly adopted the world's way of thinking for a moment. You've become a dysfunctional Christian in that area of your life. Which means that you're just like a non-Christian in that area of your life. And you're evaluating people based purely on what kind of clothes they're wearing. Or what you can tell about their lives from how they appear before you right in this second. And James says, this is the part that is incompatible. It's inconceivably incompatible because our Savior has been welcoming to the non-religious and the religious. He's been welcoming to all the nations. He has high regard for all kinds of people that get left out by the world. You know, the Roman goddess Justitia, embodied in the little bronze statuettes, statues that you see, the blind lady of justice. She's not wearing bifocals. Her eyes are covered. This is supposed to demonstrate in a judicial setting that what's happening is with these balancing scales that you're weighing evidence and that you're not even paying attention to whether the person's rich or poor, You're giving them their due. You're making yourself blind to the things that might alter your judgment. Schools with admission policies do this sometimes graciously. They say, we are need blind. Which is to say, we're not going to look at how much financial aid you're going to hit us up for before we decide if you can come to our school. We're going to cut that knowledge off from ourselves. As we make a decision. James is urging people who are believers in the glorious Lord Jesus Christ. To become purposefully blind. To certain kinds of realities that, that inform how we act. And you'll have to think about where you might do this in your life. I've noticed in our own church over the years. The demographics have changed. Lula Lake is skewing a little older these days. But for instance, if you were a a lovely family with children with smocked apparel, and you got out of your SUV, and you came into church for the first time, there would be a scene that would make you think, that there was sorority rush at the University of Alabama. Because you would be so noticed and so fond over and so adored and so welcomed. But if you were a 72-year-old divorced woman who was a bit introverted and walked in, maybe no one would notice you. They wouldn't mean anything by it. They just wouldn't notice. You weren't the right demographic. 
The gravitational pull of people's hearts weren't you. Well, that can happen if you're in an older congregation with younger people or older people. or Just different. That's all it has to be. It just has to be different. And James is saying, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, the one, the Lord of glory who's coming back, the Lord who is welcoming indiscriminately to all, wants us to make ourselves alert to paying special attention to all kinds of folks, especially the ones that we might be prone to forget. He's not opposed to us paying special attention and giving honor to people that we want to honor, but he's wanting to make sure we don't dishonor people in the process by our forgetfulness. A boy said of his sister, poor Swede, she always did think better of me than I had coming. When you start sizing people up and making judgments about them, you're thinking the worst about them. You're deciding things for them, and people who have been welcomed to God by a gracious disposition of God toward us can suddenly start to think better of people than they have coming. Don't show favoritism and get your eyes checked with God. Listen, my dear brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him But you've insulted the poor, and it isn't the rich? Aren't they the ones who are exploiting you? Aren't they the ones who are dragging you into court? Aren't they the ones who are slandering the noble name of him to whom you belong? See, when James is saying this is inconceivably incompatible with faith, he's saying you're just doing what's natural. You're not going beyond what's natural. So you're only seeing with the world's eyes, and you're seeing exactly like everybody does. That's why the Bible says stuff like, don't grow overawed when a man grows rich, because that's the only thing we do. The people we esteem in the world are people who have accomplished great things, who have a lot of things. Whether it's a lot of beauty or a lot of money or a lot of talent, we don't esteem people or pay attention to people who have three followers on Twitter. This week at General Assembly, as you're walking along the roads in Atlanta, it is very clear who matters and who doesn't. There are people in very nice, expensive suits. They're running the world. There are also people using the curb for a pillow, sleeping in a parking lot in the middle of the day. They do not matter. That's what's natural for us to think. And James would say, but as believers in our Lord Jesus Christ, who has identified himself as a homeless man with no place to lay his head, as a forgotten man, as a rejected man, as a cast-out man, as a man of sorrows acquainted with many griefs, then we suddenly have to become aware of the people that were usually quite easy to forget. And if we start to see as God does, we'll realize, oh, the weakest people, the poorest people, the most troubled people are very often the very ones who have the most faith. And you sense that, I think, 
You have people, hopefully, in your life, you're around, and you say, wow, they actually believe that God's going to do things. They actually count on God in really substantial ways, and they don't even, they don't even read the Atlantic. They don't even know what, it, what station NPR is, and yet they have this living faith in Jesus Christ that informs their life and makes them joyful. And their 401k is not even fully funded. It's not even remotely funded. It's not even, it's negatively funded. We start to see differently and we start to make different evaluations. Our outgoing moderator of the General Assembly, a Korean professor from California, who greeted the assembly saying, just so you know that things are well on the Left coast, there are plenty of fruits and nuts abounding. He had a man bun, which is the first Korean moderator and the first man bun moderator of the General Assembly of the Presbyterian Church in America. But he says when we're seeing with the eyes of the world, then we say, here's a stranger, let's kick him out. That's a nationalist way of thinking. But Jesus would say, I was a stranger and you welcomed me in. That's a Christian way of thinking. Eve just read the passage that God says he feeds and clothes the foreigner. There's all these different ways of starting to think that aren't easily politicized. They don't deal with what the public policy should be. They just say, how is mercy informing the way we treat People, especially people who have no clout and no influence. People who are vulnerable to being separated from their children, for instance. If you get not just the eyes of the world, but you start to see with God's eyes, then all of a sudden you start to evaluate and pay attention to all sorts of things very much more differently. Don't show favoritism. Get your eyes checked and cast off your old spiritual life preservers. I'm jumping here. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who's not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. James has just said, if you keep the royal law, the king's law, found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, then you do right. But if you practice favoritism, you are a lawbreaker. It's like adultery. It's like murder. If you stumble at one part of the law, then you've broken all of it, he says. And one of the things he recognizes is that mercy is required to override the natural judging tendencies of our hearts. Because our judging tendencies arise because we're lawbreakers. Our judging tendencies arise because we're people who are looking for spiritual life preservers, to use Richard Lovelace's word. In other words, when we meet other people, we need to find out how to not feel inferior to them. We need to figure out how do we deal with our anxiety and our desperation? How do we deal with the fact that we know we're not so hot? Well, here's how you do it. You find somebody to be better than. You find somebody to stand in superiority over. 
You can even practice the, what Freud called the narcissism of small differences. We have two schools. Chattanooga has some of this. That are nearly identical. And you act like they're the most different. Like one is righteous and one is wicked, which is true. I've heard. They're so much alike. But you need one to be awful and one to be great. And that's in blacks and whites. and People... As Cecil Gravett used to say, back here across the attitudinal line, on the back of Lookout Mountain, not latitudinal, attitudinal. The back of the mountain folks and the front of the mountain folks. There's a lot more intermingling these days. But there's mutual suspicion and derision that can happen. It's a spiritual life preserver. We're hanging on for dear life, and the way we do that is by making sure that somebody's worse than us. Making sure that there's some enemy out there that we can point to. They're the wicked ones. They're the terrible ones. They're the failing ones because we know ourselves to be those things. But if they exist, then we maybe not, maybe we don't fall in the same category. Self-righteousness as spiritual life preservers to support Our confidence, we cling to shreds of ability and righteousness. Our membership in political parties, our membership from certain cultures, our social connection, we cling to these things and need somebody else to be put down in the process. But James says, if you don't practice favoritism, if you change out your glasses and see as God sees and start speaking and acting as if you're doing it in front of the God who is going to inspect you one day, not according to the standards of Fox News or MSNBC, not according to whatever the Republicans or the Democrats say, but according to what his law of love says, a law that for Christians... For believers in the glorious Lord Jesus Christ, he has kept for us. So that judgment has been exhausted and we stand before him in hopes, confidently, of mercy. You've heard the story, this is the closing story, of the man who's seated along the Ganges River, meditating, And he sees a scorpion being swept along the river, drowning, scurrying on the water. And he reaches out to save it, just like Hank might do. And when he reaches out to save this scorpion, this is not a scorpion, a lookout mountain scorpion that you'll find in your shoe in the morning. You need to check your shoes. It's a more dangerous one. He grabs it and he gets stung and he instantly pulls back his hand and And yet the little critter is still writhing, so he reaches out his hand again, and it stings him again, and his face writhes in pain and contorts. And his hand and arm start to swell. And yet he reaches out again to grab this scorpion. And a passerby says, you fool, to the old man. Why are you risking yourself to save this hideous 
stinging creature. And the man said, just because it is his nature to sting does not alter the fact that I have an overriding nature to save. Your Savior delights to give you what you don't deserve. But not just you, all the people you know. Even though we've had our stingers out, even though he's come after us and we've flipped him off and we've shouted at him and we've ignored him, and he said, yet still I pay for you that you might know mercy. And James says it would be inconceivable and incompatible with a faith in a Savior like that to discriminate against someone because they have the wrong kind of hair or car or culture or skin or money. Let us be people who practice showing favorites to all kinds of people, even the despised, as our Savior has done for us. Amen.